some of this is going to sound cliche, but I truly don't do things for money. I've made that a point to not do things for money and not to allow mm-hmm. money to be the driver of the car. Not to say that money is not important, but I consciously, you know, even getting into this before I had any money, kind of had a conversation with myself about what my relationship with my art and money was going to be. And I decided then that it can't be the thing that makes the decisions. Welcome back, everyone to Stuck with Damon Young, the show where if you knew us back in 2012, you would have found us at Trader Joe's, wolfing down free samples of turkey bacon because we couldn't afford to buy it then. So money is a legitimately terrifying thing for many of us to talk about, myself included, because it's just so messy and so revealing that it almost feels like you're talking the clothes off of your body. To talk about the relationship between making art and making money for the art that you make, I'm joined by the comedian Sam Jay, who shares some really unique insights on money and comedy and validation, why it's so important to have a hustler's mentality to help you get through it. And then, for Dear Damon, Alzo Slate returns to help me resolve a person's anxiety about navigating a world where masks in public are becoming increasingly rare. All right, y'all, let's get it. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The writer and comedian Sam Jay was the host of the HBO original series Pause with Sam Jay. Sam, what's good? What's good, bro? I'm good. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Are you still torn? No. I've just been chilling, bro. So the special that you just recorded, just to let everyone know, I saw Sam when she came to Pittsburgh. She was at Bottle Rocket in Pittsburgh and did a set for about an hour. And this was, I think, maybe in April. And so were there any elements from that show that you uh, put into your recording? Oh, man, you pretty much saw the hour. Okay. I've tweaked a little bit of stuff, but I feel like at that point I was pretty like, this is what the journey is. And this was the theme of the conversation. So you pretty much saw it. It was a good hour. And I can almost see how, you know, I write memoir and I could see even elements of memoir, particularly with comedians who have multiple stand-up specials Mm -hmm. and you could see not necessarily progression but you could see the connection from the last one to this one it's not necessarily like a seamless thing but it's just like okay this is part like of a tapestry this is part of a story Mm -hmm. now when you're doing that do you have that in mind in terms of like connecting the first to the second or you're just like fuck this i'm gonna just do some all new shit and pretty much i'm gonna just do some all new stuff but like life has this kind of natural way of making those connections for mm-hmm. you, I think, even if that's not like the goal, you know, like as I was building this one, weirdly, I was like, I'm not going to talk about my relationship at all. And it started to be a conversation about just the masculinity and femininity of it all. But then it's like in that I could not talk about my relationship. So then that kind of started to make that bridge happen, like kind mm-hmm. of 
just in this natural way that kind of was unexpected. But now that it exists, I don't hate it. Now, are you are you one of the people where you can't really listen to your old shit? Like it makes you cringe? Oh, yeah. Like I'm already like everything I said was stupid and I just said it Saturday. Mm -hmm. So it's like immediately once it's like out of me, I'm like, yeah, that's I mean, that's why I got off Twitter. I'm not going to front and pretend like it has something to do with like Elon Musk or anything like that. It was my own anxiety about tweeting. And it's just like, you know what? I delete too many tweets where I have a tweet up and like 10 minutes later, I'm like, man, I could have written that better. That joke could have hit more. And I just delete it. And it's like, yo, what what is the point of me being on this platform? I'm going to do this with like 40 percent of the shit that I tweet. I don't think you can avoid that feeling, though, if you're like a a writer or any, you know, like even with Mm -hmm. the special, I was laying in the bed this morning like, oh, man, you could have added that point. That would have made that bit stronger. Or You should have said that and you didn't say that thing. And I think you missed that thing that you sometimes say, but you should have definitely said it then, you know? Yeah, I, I remember hearing this quote about writing. And I guess it applies to this, too, where the person I'm paraphrasing, but it was like, you don't finish books, you escape them. Mm -hmm. I wish somebody would have told me that shit like 10 years ago. I wish I would have heard that shit 10 years ago. Yeah, it's kind of like you have to just have the baby and then like however the baby comes out, it's like especially like with a live performance. It's like in your head, you're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to say this. I'm going to cover this base, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, in the moment, the energy that's in the room is dictating things. You might end up having an interaction with the audience member takes you this way. There's definitely moments in it already where I'm like, ah, oh, you should have said that. And I think anytime I do a special, I'm going to feel like that. So I got a, I got a question for you that kind of relates to this topic, but it's kind of off track a little bit. What's the brokest thing you've ever done as an adult? Damn, I've done so many broke things. Wow. Because some of them are, like, these personal things that no one knows, but I know, and those were sad. I'm trying to think, it was it sadder when it w- had to be on display for other people? Or was it sadder <laughs> when it was just <laughs> just me? And I'm like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> I got a few. And there's some that is funny. It's like, you know, I used to go to Costco and Trader Joe's just for the free, you know, free samples. Didn't have money to go to brunch. So I was like, you know what? This is my brunch right here. So my car got repossessed in 2012. So I didn't have the money to get it back. I borrowed some from one of my boys. I borrowed some from my dad. And the rest, I joined a church because this church had a credit union. Damn. (laughs) So if you remember the church, you were able to sign up, get access to the credit union and get whatever money that you needed to get. And so, boom, I joined this church. Whatever registration I needed to do, I did that. Whatever service I needed to attend, I did that. Got like five or six hundred dollars was able to get my car back. Damn. I mean, that's also innovative. And you gave your time to the Lord. So I don't know that that's bad. I mean. <laughs> I mean, the intention's not great, but you still had to go and hear the word. So like. I had to be present. Right. You're right. I had to be present. I had to be in the house. So you're, so you're right. So you know what? That was a broke thing, but it wasn't as blasphemous as I thought it was. The brokest thing I've ever done. Damn. Is probably. I used to do fake deposits when you could do that. You can't do that anymore. But there was a time where you could put empty deposit envelopes into an ATM and you could get, like, you know how they give you part of the money right there? So, like, if you made, like, a $500 deposit, they'll release 200 of it immediately in good faith. So I would just put empty slips in the ATM, say I deposited some money, 
and then get the money that I wanted out and then just let my account be negative until whenever I could like fix it. I've never heard of that before. I thought I knew all the broke scams. <laughs> All right, learn something new every day. Wow. Yeah. And then you're only going to go negative for what you took. So the higher you said the deposit was, the more money became available to you immediately. There wasn't like someone at the bank that maybe after you did this like two or three times, you're like, yo, you can't do this anymore. Because I had a job and it always would get fixed. Mm -hmm. It took a while before they were like, you need to leave the bank alone. That was one thing I used to do. Uh, I used to sell my DVDs and stuff back to like Newberry Comics <laughs> when I wanted to like go out and drink. See me, I used to just be at the club mad early. Like if the club opens at 10, I would be the nigga that showing up at like seven and just hanging out. We looked better because it was like a group of us that would always mm -hmm. go out. So it was like nine, 10 of us. So we would get there like early enough to get in for free, but not early enough to look like you super trying to get in for free. It was fucked up too, because then when I started like studying and I, <laughs> I had made my transition from straight woman to lesbian, the clubs were getting mad because all the dykes would come in, free ladies, and they would bring their dates and stuff. So then the clubs started like just shutting you down at the door because they knew they couldn't kind of like say it publicly, but you would get to the door and they'd be like, we ain't doing that stud shit. You got to pay. It's <laughs> <laughs> fucked up. I wanted to ask you that question about money because I feel like that is not something that we talk about enough, particularly people who maybe came from more economically vulnerable circumstances, niggas who was poor and now are no longer broke or no longer poor. When that shift happens, how it could just be not just an environment shift, but like an equilibrium, like internal barometric pressure sort of shift where everything changes. Right. And then also there's a reality that a lot of decisions that people who grew up poor make professionally, particularly artistic decisions, are money based. It's supposed to be about the craft, supposed to be about the love, supposed to be about the passion, supposed to be about, you know, wanting to grow as an artist. But also, nigga, fuck you, pay me. How has your relationship with money in your work particularly changed or has it changed? Some of this is going to sound cliche, but I truly don't do things for money. I've made that a point to not do things for money and not to allow mm -hmm. money to be the driver of the car. Not to say that money is not important and not to say that I'm not interested in money and not to say that I don't like money or anything like that. Because if that was the case, I would be, you know, just on the street telling jokes on the corner. So, no, I definitely care. But I consciously, you know, even getting into this before I had any money, kind of had a conversation with myself about what my relationship with my art and money was going to be. And I decided then that it can't be the thing that makes the decisions. I can't do that that way or I will quickly and easily become compromised, I felt as a person. So while money is important to me, I make every decision artistically based on where I'm at, why I want to do it, mm -hmm. why I think it's valuable to do, and what I think it's adding, and then money. I like the way you put it, because money isn't a driver of a car, but money could be ways. <laughs> you know what I mean? Money 
money could be like, you know what? I know we we're trying to go, but maybe instead of going on this road, you go on that road. It has to be like with purpose past the money, you know, like, yeah, you know, there's a reason why I'm not on my IG hawking a bunch of items to people. I definitely could be making more money that I'm making for sure. Mm-hmm. If I would make some different decisions about how I wanted to use this profile and and what I do. But I just don't think for me anyway, that that's going to work out the integrity of the thing and, and the credibility of what I'm trying to create and build and sustain, I think has to, you know, matter more than the bread. But like with that said, you know, yes, I have teams of white people that I, I pay to go get me the most money they could possibly get me <laughs> for the things that I want to do for sure. You know what I mean? So it's like, I, I'm not trying to sell that story, but I definitely don't even the things that don't seem like, oh, Sam would do that type of thing. I didn't do it because of money. I did it because I wanted to learn something over there. I thought there was something that could grow me as an artist in that place. Or I saw some other value in it that I felt I could add to what I'm already doing and building. But if it's just money, I've told myself, like, that's a red flag for you. If the only reason you're stepping into a space is because they're about to pay you whatever, then you should genuinely question what you're doing and why you're there. I agree. Again, that's how your art gets compromised. That's how your integrity gets compromised. And then you just become a mercenary. And the thing that happens is that once money starts being the only driver, then your work suffers. And then it gets to the point where you can't make money anymore because your work sucks. Yes. Because you're out here just, you know, selling yourself off to the highest Mm. bidder. It has to have more than that to it for me, whether it's I'm going to walk into a space I've never done before. Like, Mm -hmm. and I want to know how this process works and I want to understand how all this kind of comes together. And there's some educational value in it for me or oh, this is a space where maybe I can reach a certain demographic of people that I've been trying to figure out how to reach and I don't have access to them currently with the things that I'm creating. And this thing is offering me an opportunity to tap into that. It just has to have more to it. And so you get on at SNL as a writer, right? And I have some thoughts on how that particular part of the industry works, but I know how publishing works, where people who get entry-level sort of jobs, which are you know, prestigious jobs, even though they're entry level because they're highly sought after and highly competitive. But these tend to be the sort of people who can afford to make 40K a year living in New York City because they're from this family or because they have this benefactor or because they're part of this legacy. And so did you see any of that with your experience, you know, writing for SNL? I mean, that's tough, right? Because it's all like perspective, I guess. Yeah. In retrospect to now being a writer for some years and writing other things and selling my own things was i making a lot of money at snl mm-hmm. no was i making the most money i had ever made in my fucking life for sure i was definitely making more money than i had ever been paid weekly to do anything i mean you make over three thousand dollars a week you know like yeah new york's expensive but it's all as expensive as you make it really like to mm-hmm. to some degree like when i first moved here You know, I didn't live how I'm living now. I was in a little like shitty New York apartment, you know, seeing if I was going to be able to keep this job. But I definitely felt more hopeful than I anything I'd ever done. You know what I'm saying? And I definitely Mm -hmm. I was going to Saks, nigga, and buying shirts. (laughs) I was feeling good, bro. I was like, yo, I got enough money to like pay my rent, eat, like 
and I could go like trick off and just buy some shit if I want it. Like if I really want to go buy this thing, I could buy this thing without feeling like I was going to ruin my week or I wasn't going to eat for two weeks because I went and caught this shirt or whatever the hell it was. So like my perspective at that point was just like, this is kind of fire. And then I get network residuals. I'm like, mm. I'm trying to remember if there was a sax moment for me. Okay, so I live in Pittsburgh, so obviously the cost of living ain't the same as it is in New York City. But, you know, when I first started writing for a living, I was on unemployment because I had just gotten laid off at Duquesne University. So I was on long-term unemployment because we were in a recession. And I was making enough money to, like, pay my rent and, you know, go to brunch once every two months or some shit like that. But not much more than that. And so once I started being able to actually take care of myself without the unemployment, 2011, 2012, I started working at Ebony Magazine. And between that and some of the other freelance stuff I was doing, I was making $3,000 a month. For me, if we're talking about perspective, that was the most money I'd ever made. See what I'm saying? That's also yeah. the thing with this industry. SNL wasn't my first check. Mm -hmm. It was my first like weekly, you're going to get this every week and this is a good amount of money. Like It was my first job in the industry that I could bring back to my family and go, this is starting to become a career. Mm -hmm. I have this place I'm going to go every week. I'm not just over here sometimes and over here sometimes. You know, it was that first type of experience with that, like a job. It was, it was a writing job. Mm -hmm. But I mean, before that, I hadn't done like this show on MTV called Safe Word. And I had done like a season of that. It was very like, you shot the whole season in two weeks. And mm -hmm. it was this show they were trying out with Terrence J. And I got like $35,000 at once and that was like whoa okay this is starting to like really happen $35,000 at one time you know what I'm saying holy shit type thing so yeah it's all relative well you mentioned the SNL job as being like the first time that you could really like go to your family like yo this is for real now like I'm I'm making a living doing this shit and so we talked about, I guess, financial validation, but was that like an emotionally validating thing for you? I guess what I want to say is you make the decision to make a career in comedy. And so was there a point, was it SNL or was it some other point where you're like, you know what, I'm not at my goal yet, but I could say that I'm actually on the right trajectory. I can actually like tell people like, you know what, this is what I'm doing. And it not just being some bullshit, but it's actually like, this is what I'm doing. And I have proof, like I could show you. For me personally, I felt that way once I started like, cause before that SNL shit too, I, I had a pilot I had sold to develop and I was kind of like starting to get little TV looks. So all that little stuff for me was like, yo, this okay. shit is real. For my family, it was SNL. It was being at an institution. It was being at a thing they understood to be an institution. It was them being able to come visit and see that I was like respected in a space mm -hmm. that for them made it solid. I think everything before that, it was just frivolous to them. It was like, oh, you got lucky. Oh, you got a shot. Oh, you got a look. But when I had like a job and then I was there for three years, cause that's how they equate stuff. Then it was like, oh, it, but you know, I think that's just, you know, when you're an artist, you have a whole different look at it. Cause even when I left SNL, they were like worried. As if I was like mm -hmm. leaving being a doctor, you know, they were like, yeah. are you sure? What are you going to do? <laughs> it's like the shit I was doing before I got there, you know, I'm going to keep mm -hmm. making shit and, you know, doing what I got into this to do. Uh, but, but for them, it was like, isn't that the end goal to get a good job? 
why wouldn't you leave a good job? And it's like, that's just how they see shit. I mean, I'll keep it a buck. That was mine. When I first started the, you know, okay, I'm a right full time thing. My ambition, one of my ambitions was to get on somewhere, staff writer somewhere, make like a salary, have the benefits and just stay there. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe write a book, maybe do other things. But my aspiration at that time, because I was so used to being in just a precarious situation where my finances were just always unsettled, I just wanted to be somewhere where I could do my work, I could write, and I could be settled. I always thought I was going to be like a gunslinger in this. I never Mm -hmm. saw anything past, and maybe that was short-sighted of me or whatever, but I just wanted to like make enough money doing comedy to live like I was living, like I was like, dude, if I could figure out how to make $36,000 a year doing stand-up, however I figured it out, it's like I'm running around the country all year for like 800 bucks Mm -hmm. weekends. But if I can get to a place in stand-up where I can string that together pretty consistently, like I was seeing a lot of other road dogs do, honestly. And I think that was my first thought. It was like, I'm just going to be like a road dog. Like I'm watching all these other dudes that I, I grew up watching on Def Jam and Mad TV and all the different spaces in which I grew up watching these comics. And, you know, they're they're out here doing their four to five K weekends, as many of those as they can get. And then they're mixing them up with $800 shows here and mm-hmm. $500 shows here. And every month they're coming up with their rent and what they need. And I was like, yo, if I could get into a situation like that, where even if I'm struggling, like I'm struggling now, I'm just doing something I actually want to do. Because right now I'm struggling and I'm doing something I fucking hate. So if I could just get to a place where I'm doing something I want to do, <laughs> yeah. I'm good. That was like my only goal. I was like, then I'm good. Then I figured it out and I'm fucking happy and I, I don't care. If I get to pay my bills this way, I'm happy, bro. You mentioned comics making a living on tour, right? I've always been curious about like, how exactly does it work? How exactly does this pay structure work? Now, obviously, someone who's more established is going to make more money than someone who maybe is less established or not. For instance, I'm a new comic. I'm going to go on tour. <laughs> How am I going to make money? How am I going to actually make money? It's crazy because it could go. Mm-hmm. It's a million different ways. That's why I, I always think with this shit, this creative shit, in all respect to the writers and what's happening now, but it's like, it is a gig economy. This is what we chose a little bit. Yeah. There's no real structure to it, especially this day and age. Say you're a new person, but you've already built an internet following. Mm-hmm. You probably make more money than me on the road. If you have two million some followers, I don't have two million some followers. I may have way more stand experience than you. I may have the ability to do an hour of stand up, and you do not. But through your two million some followers, you can sell out a tour in a way that I cannot. So even if they get to your show and they're disappointed, you still sold those tickets. So you may make way more money than me. Because it's not based on any of that shit. I understand what you're saying. I was asking more about structurally. So let's say you're on that tour and you sell out the show. Now, are you getting an advance for that venue? Or are you getting like a portion of the proceeds? Depends on the deal you make. Depends on the deal. Okay. Some people get to a place, you fucking Dave, you a Chris. You get Mm -hmm. to a place where you're like, you're not getting none of that. You only get this because I'm now at this place. Some people, you might be at a place where you're like, I don't even know if I could sell these things out or not. So I'm working off the guarantee. Some motherfuckers guarantee might be $6,000 because they got TV credits 
or they have this or they have that. Another motherfucker's guarantee might be $1,500. Cause it's like me taking a big risk on you, you taking a risk mm -hmm. coming out here. Some clubs don't give a guarantee. Okay. And again, this is just, I'm still learning all the different ways to make money, you know, and I'm especially curious with artists, people who don't necessarily have the traditional nine to fives, like, okay, well, you're making a living doing this thing making money but how does that actually happen like how is the money actually made your agency and managers also that that helps that right depending mm. on the level of your agent or your manager you might be able to get a better guarantee or a better situation purely based on the relationships your touring agent has because if they have other relationships that the club values even if the club doesn't value you that high they want to keep this person who has these other relationships happy so yeah. your touring agent could have a baseline where it's like, none of my comics work for less than a $4,000 or $3,000 guarantee. That's the baseline for anybody that I represent because that's where I'm at and that's my level. You get what I'm saying? So yeah. you're getting that because whoever that person is who's decided they want to represent you, they believe in you and now you're getting that off the strength of them a little bit, off of their other relationships that they have that they can leverage with this club. It just could be a million things. Yeah, I mean, and it is a hustle. And whenever I get in front of like young people who ask, like, okay, how do you how do you write for a living? How do you be an artist for a living? It's like, no, you got to hustle, <laughs> right? Like, you know, yeah, there's some people who have the established nine to five and they get the salary and they're able to go home and spend time with their family and whatever. But even getting to that point takes some hustle. It's a circumstance where you know, you might have a good year, you might have a great year. And then that great year is followed by a year that ain't so great. Right, or you might have a run of like eight great years and then a run of like 10 years where no one gives a fuck about you, bro. Yeah. I was just watching on, what you call it? Catherine Hepburn's joint, the doc she had on Netflix, I think. Mm -hmm. Just watching the ebbs and flows of this woman's career. You know what I mean? And just being like, yeah. dude, you can't really predict any of this shit in that way, you know what I mean? It's just trying to figure out like what, for me, I knew the path I wanted. I wanted the path of longevity. I wanted to be able to do this for a long time. However it comes, the ebbs and flows, I wanted to establish a situation where I could do this till I'm dead. So that's what I was going for. Is that still the goal? Yeah, I just want to be able to create stuff. When I started, it was comedy. I want to be able to do stand-up. I'm a stand-up. And I was very like rigid in what that was. Mm -hmm. I think I'm way more open, but I do want to be a creative till I'm I'm not here. I want to be able to make things. Yeah. I was uh, talking to somebody the other day about the concept of retirement and how that's just something I just never considered. I just don't envision myself just not doing anything. Yeah. In my mind, you know retirement I mean? is me writing a book. Like, I always think <laughs> my book is going to come when it's like I'm old and I can't really run okay. around no more. When something mm -hmm. forces me to sit down and write it because I'm not moving and my brain's like, all right. But that's in my mind what retirement looks like. Retirement looks like another project. Basically, your retirement is like my career right now. <laughs> like writing a book. <laughs> maybe, maybe I have a podcast. <laughs> All right, Sam, thank you so much for coming through. Yo, your new special, where where can people find it? Where's it going to be? On HBO. Not Max, ya bitch. HBO. HBO proper. Old school. HBO. But when you go on Max, you know they got them tabs. You got to hit that HBO tab. <laughs> I'm super excited for it. 
it was the vibes on a thousand. It was the best show of the tour, which is what you want. The energy was there, and the first show was like the execution show. So I feel like the combo is gonna come out saucy. All right, Sam J, appreciate you. Appreciate you, big dog. All right. Up next, Stuart Damon with the homie Alzo Slade. But first, Damon hates. I'm going to keep this short. My beef is that Pittsburgh shares a characteristic with many other smaller cities. And it's a characteristic that I feel like Pittsburgh should not share with these many other smaller cities, smaller communities, smaller suburbs, whatever. And it's that there are limited options, right, for eating if it is like nine o'clock on a weekday or even a weekend. The options are limited. And I feel like Pittsburgh, you know, we're big enough and we want to be like this burgeoning city, a city that has shifted from being known for steel and known for power plants and known for smog. And now we are known for tech. We are known for education. We are known for arts. That is great. But we also need to make that transition to have more late night eating options. If I'm hungry at 930 and I've had a long day at work, maybe I've had a whole lot of shit to do you know, family stuff, whatever, and I want to go out to get a bite to eat at 9.30 on a Wednesday, my options shouldn't be limited to motherfucking Wendy's. Again, this is a thing that if you live in Pittsburgh or if you've been to Pittsburgh, you know it's a thing. I just wish that I didn't have to go to New York City or D.C. or Cleveland even to experience late night food. If we're making changes, if we're thinking that we're evolving and becoming like this modern city, why don't we just grow the fuck up and stay the fuck up so that I can be able to eat dinner somewhere at 1030 on a Wednesday without having to stay home or go to Wendy's. So the homie Alzo Slade is a correspondent for Vice News. Alzo, what's good? Man, holding it down like paperweights. You know what a T.I. is. Playoff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man, I'm um got one of the five sunny days of the year in Pittsburgh, you know what I mean? So I'm looking forward to taking advantage of that. Nice. You made a mention before about the fresh. Right, the fade is fresh with the two parts, bro. You know what? I, I figured this is how the mullet is like the series in the front party in the back. Yeah. You know, I got the locks growing, so I got the millennial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the top. On the top. But I got the 80s. The old school. You know what I mean? The old school on the side of my head, so. It, bro, the lineup is fresh, too. Like, the edge is, it looks like your neck smells of fresh alcohol. You know, shout out to the Natural Choice Barbershop, <laughs> Pittsburgh. You know what I mean? Anyone comes through to the Berg, hit up the Natural Choice, they'll set you right. You know what I mean? They'll make it right. This is good to know. I'm going to pull up on you one day. <laughs> All right, Morgan, the producer. What we got going this week? Dear Damon, summer's coming. I've been really good the past couple of years about masking up. But with the restrictions lifted, I'm ready to be back outside. But what's the proper way to be outside to be respectful of my fellow maskers while still having fun? Shit. That's a, that's a good question. Wait a minute. Is this a question from 2023? Yeah. Why Why you say that? Huh? Who, who still wearing masks? I mean, I still wear masks. Really? I do. Okay. So my relationship with masks, 
right? I was still masking at the gym last year. I would be the nigga out there. See, that just let me know you ain't working out hard enough. Cause you So <laughs> let me let me finish. So I was masked while playing ball. I'd be the nigga out there with a mask on. <laughs> this one little little dude used to call me Bane. Because he had never even seen my face. Yeah. Yeah. He used to start coming to the run. Yeah. He's like in his early twenties. And he used to fuck with me, call me, okay, here comes Bane. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I had the mask on. And I stopped wearing it while playing ball probably about three months ago because I figured it became too much of an obstacle where I'm always adjusting it. And it's like, if I'm doing all this shit, is it even doing anything while I'm out here playing with it on? Hold on, David. First of all, your beard way too strong. Well, that's not <laughs> for your mask to do any good, bro. Like, if, if COVID was coming for you and they saw that mask, they'd be like, look at this clown right here. <laughs> Watch me sneak through these follicles real quick. Well, you know what? That was another, and I'm sure you've experienced that. You know, you also got a strong beard. You know, you got a yeah. brolic beard going on right there, too. Yeah. And that's another thing. It's like, you know, all the greatest scientists in the world came together to find a vaccine or to try to, to find ways to save people's lives from this virus. But no one could discover a mask for niggas with beards. No, bro. All the greatest minds in the world couldn't come together and find something. I was like, I ain't going booty face for COVID. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I went through a lot to be able to finally grow this beard. You don't want to see me without the beard. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, this is doing a lot for me. I've never seen you without a beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let it work, Flair. I'm not cutting off my beard just so an N95 could fit me in a snuggly way. Listen. You know what I mean? So I, I have it on, and it does something. Yeah. It did something. Well, how do you know it did something? It did something psychologically, which I think is very powerful. I think that matters. Yeah. You know, if we're talking like full body, holistic health or whatever, I think that yeah, psychosomatic shit is real, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. I agree. I agree. But to answer your question, like if I'm in an Uber, which I'm not really in much while I'm home, but if I'm like traveling New York City or whatever, I'm in an Uber, I'll wear a mask. I'll mask up in airport, no airplanes. Yeah. So when I'm in close spaces... You know what I mean? I still wear the mask, but now if I go to the gym or if I'm like, I went to like Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra, you know, in this big ballroom, Hans Hall, downtown Pittsburgh. All right. I see. Okay. Okay. <laughs> with there. Okay, culture. Yeah. And um, I didn't mask up in there because it was just this really, really big space. And so, but I was a person who was very vigilant about masks. I have an autoimmune disease. Okay, yeah. You had to be diligent. I had to be vigilant about that. And so that's the thing for me. I don't mind wearing a mask if I'm asked to. Mm -hmm. You know, so like I was in Seattle at a bookstore and I walked in and they had masks at the front and they're like, sir, do you mind wearing a mask? And I say, absolutely not. You know, and they gave me one. I wore it for the time that I was in the store. But generally speaking, I don't. Like I don't on airplanes. I mean, I did, you know, during lockdown, which really wasn't a lockdown for me because I traveled more during the pandemic than I ever have. And, you know, because news doesn't stop. And, you know, that's when, you know, a lot was happening with regard to BLM, George Floyd. And, mm -hmm. and there were times where I was in situations and I said to myself, well, if I end up getting COVID, I know this was the moment. Mm -hmm. I got it. You know, I've not gotten it, or at least if I have, I don't know it. Your fan that, that wrote the letter, you know, they were asking about how to be respectful. Is that what the question was? Yeah, I think the question, 
I feel like this is the year where even the people who have been the most vigilant are taking more chances, doing more things. You know what I mean? I know that I am. Like, for instance, I am more likely to wear a mask when I'm out, when I'm home, right? But when I travel and I'm going out, if I'm in New York City and I'm, you know, going to this spot and going to that spot and going to this spot, I'll mask up an Uber. But once I'm in the spot, I'm not wearing a mask, mm. right? Mm -hmm. But then when I would come home back to Pittsburgh, I was a bit more vigilant about doing that. But again, it's just, it's a weird, I think we are still trying to determine like the proper etiquette going forward and also being mindful of the fact that this thing is still out there. I think that is the proper way to go about it, but I don't feel that when I'm out. When I go out, it used to be when someone was not wearing a mask, you would recognize it. Like mm -hmm. it was obvious. It's yeah. like, wow, you know, one of these kids is doing their own thing situation, you know? Mm -hmm. And now I feel that in the inverse to where when I'm out and I see a person with a mask, I think, oh, oh yeah, I forgot. We are still in a situation where COVID is out here and it's, you know, it's still a thing. And I don't judge them. It's just a stark reminder that, oh, maybe this is something that we still should be doing, but I hardly ever see anyone doing it, including myself. And, you know, you, you made up the point about like the psychosomatic and how even if my beard kind of negated <laughs> the mask's <laughs> effectiveness, there still might've been something to me believing that I had some sort of protection yeah, or whatever and how that could affect full body and so the psychology of masking the psychology of how we're contending with this virus is something i'm really interested in because to your point COVID is still out there mm -hmm. but i am less vigilant mm -hmm. and there hasn't been like any reason to be less vigilant other than time spent and other than us just getting used to it being around well you think so because i mean it's not in the news it's not in the news but there are still people catching and still people dying. Yeah. But it's not headline news anymore. It's not even like a segment on the news anymore. Not in the paper. It's not even a segment, you know, because we were seeing the ticker of the numbers going. Yeah. Like they used to have stations here in Pittsburgh where you could go and get tested, rapid tested, et cetera. Those stations don't exist anymore because no one was going. Yo, can we talk about some of them stations, though? <laughs> <laughs> what, you, what do you want to say? Bro, I don't know what it's like in Pittsburgh, but I know in New York and L.A., bro, some of them, some, them jokers, they used to, they just throw up a, a tent that they got from the sporting goods store and put it <laughs> and write on a, a poster board, like COVID-19 testing. And I'm like, it is like some a pimple-faced teenager there with a little, a little box that usually holds crayons and markers, but now they got like, <laughs> they got syringes and stuff. I'm like, bro, wait a minute. I don't, this look a little suspect to me. I feel like, like, remember that, that kid who got arrested or whatever for impersonating a doctor? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like there was some of that maybe happening. Where and, and it's funny because that goes that plays on our own expectation. Where same dynamic was in Pittsburgh. Yeah, where you would see people was like, "Yo, didn't I could have swore I saw your Burger King?" Like, <laughs> and you're here, <laughs> you know, determining whether I have a like a life threatening uh, virus. But because of us seeing, like, okay, they have the official mm -hmm. signage, mm -hmm. they have the they mm -hmm. have the tent they're wearing white, the white coat, then that automatically means that, okay, these people can be trusted. Obviously must know what they're talking about. They must be trusted. Now, I don't want to be a nigga who is <laughs> just sowing distrust of medicine 
<laughs> right here. But no, now we're not we're not talking about a distrust of medicine. Or people working in that field. But wait a minute. But I'm just saying, I feel like there are legit official employees, workers, medical professionals in that field. But like, let me just merge into another lane that is parallel. I know growing up in Tallahassee and even in college, you go to a party downtown or something, and there's a dude in a fluorescent vest in the parking lot taking money for you to park in that lot. And you like, mm-hmm. man, this joker does not, is not affiliated with this, with yeah, this, no with this idea. property. <laughs> His affiliation. <laughs> no idea. But <laughs> but you go, but you like, if I don't give him this money and I park here, you know, my shit may be broken into or gone when I get back. You know what I'm saying? But mm-hmm. nine times out of 10, this joker went and got a fluorescent vest from his cousin that worked in sanitation and, and he taking 10, 15, 20 dollars for you to park in the space. Now, back to the folks in the tent <laughs> giving COVID-19 tests. Them jokers then got wholesale tests from Walgreens, Dwayne Reed from a cousin that was delivering them on a truck and he set up a tent and he like, yo, COVID test right here. Twenty dollars with a little with a little printer and he and he print out the results so you can go fly to wherever you need to be or for your job. Now these were free. These were free in Pittsburgh. We didn't have to pay. <laughs> we didn't have to pay for them. <laughs> but getting back yes. to the question, yes. this person wants to know how to be considerate, how to be mindful of people who are still out and vigilant. Mm-hmm. And I think you just be considerate. You be a compassionate, absolutely, yeah, 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 empathetic human. Yeah, where if someone seems uncomfortable with a thing, you don't make fun of them. You don't be like, "Uh, oh, what's wrong with you? You, yeah, you know, hypochondriac, you know, hysterical, whatever." It's like, no, this person. You don't know if this person has autoimmune disorder. You don't know, and also too, this person is probably still kind of doing the right thing. Yeah, you know what I mean. Even though the rest of us, most of the rest of us, have decided to kind of be like, all right, fuck it. And so I think that you just treat that person with care, treat that person with compassion. Yep. If they're worried that you're too close, well, back away. No, I'm with you on that. You know what I mean? If they want you to mask up when you are with them or if you're about to come over or if you're sharing an Uber or whatever, do it. Do it. I mean, it's it's like it's nothing. Yeah. It's nothing to do that. You know, I'm with you on that. Yeah, you asked me to put on a mask. No problem. My problem is I don't carry them. And so <laughs> that's, another, that's, that's the issue. So like, they'd be like, sir, do, sir uh, would you mind putting on a mask? Not a problem. Would you happen to have a spare one, please? <laughs> you know? All right. Although, Slate, appreciate you coming back, man. Thank you. Yeah. No, man, it's good to be back. And just for the record, you know, I know you got repeat listeners. I told you this before. If I had a photo with Harry Belafonte, I would not <laughs> have posted it. <laughs> and, and why? Why wouldn't you have posted it? Because it's not about me. It's about the memory of the person. Exactly. So if I really wanted to memorialize Harry Belafonte, then I would just find a dope-ass photo of Harry Belafonte, put it up, mm-hmm. and just make sure my caption was fire. You know what I'm saying? My yeah. caption was respectful, and and if I had a personal story, I would 
write that story in the caption. But I, like, why are you putting yourself in the photo? Yeah, and it's always an unflattering photo. It's love. It's like the person squinting. They're tired from like a night of like shaking hands and signing books. Come on, man. You know, they're not even looking at the camera. They're not, they're not even looking at the right camera. You're looking at the right camera because you know, you asked someone to take this picture. Yes. So you share this flattering as fuck picture yourself. Yes. Why the celebrity look like they got a lazy eye because they looking at the wrong lens. Mm-hmm. And knowing, knowing that it's a thousand dope curated photographs on Google Images that you could just pull from and do right by this person. We see what y'all niggas is doing. Y'all, y'all jokers ain't slick. We see what y'all <laughs> Y'all ain't slick. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Also, real quick, what you got going on? Like any new features, you know, you got going with Vice we should know about? Yeah. I spent three weeks in the Democratic Republic of Congo and mostly in Kowazi in the South mm-hmm. doing a story about cobalt mining and how the Congo is rich with minerals and has a long history of exploitation of those minerals and cobalt is just the next iteration of that. And it was a very difficult story to tell, but it needed to be told. And and cobalt is the mineral that's used in our cell phones, electric vehicles and laptops that makes the, the batteries mm-hmm. easier and, and faster to charge. So when we, you know, got your cell phone and they're telling you that, oh, you get to 100% charge in like 30 minutes. Well, it's because of cobalt and how the folks over there mining it are being exploited shit yeah sorry to leave on a down note but uh, nah i mean i i asked i asked and I, and I you know i appreciate what you do man likewise so so thank you thank you for that and make sure to check it out on showtime right on showtime mm-hmm. okay all right well again also slate thank you appreciate you thanks for coming through appreciate you bro appreciate the squad and all that y'all do all right man peace, peace. Again, I just want to thank Sam J. Alzo Slade coming through today. Great conversation, great guest, great topic. You know, and thank you all for coming through again for another week. I stuck with Damon Young. Could have been anywhere else in the world, but you chose to be here with us this week. So thank you for that. Also, you can listen to Stuck with Damon Young wherever podcasts are available. But if you happen to be on Spotify, you happen to be on the Spotify app, we have interactive questions, answers. You can have some fun with it. So go ahead, check it out on the Spotify app. Also, if you have any questions about anything whatsoever, hit me up at DearDamon at Crooked.com. All right, y'all. See you next week. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Kendra James and Madeline Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing and mastering by Sarah Gibble-Laska and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music and score by Taka Yasuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. And from Spotify, our executive producers are Lauren Silverman, Neil Drumming, and Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Leslie Guam and Crystal Hall Stressler. Thank you.